Hello, everyone. Today's Bible reading will be on 1 Corinthians、um, chapter 1, verse 18 to 31. So it is you see in the screen. I'll just give a few moments for everyone to find where that is. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than men's strength. Brothers, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world, and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is as it is written, "Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord." Amen. I feel like it's a pretty great honor to get to talk on Mother's Day.、Um, I saw this YouTube video. A、uh, week and a half ago, two weeks ago, I don't know what qualifies a video as going viral, so I'll just say it was infectious. Maybe it was not viral, but it was infectious.、Um, where this this group of people had created a job, they posted a job online and and in the papers, and then held live interviews over Skype. And so the the video you're watching is these interviews. And so the job description was like yay long, and the guys walking through it, the interviewer. And he's he's talking to several different people, and he says, "Well, hey, this job requires you to be on your feet probably eighty to ninety percent of the time, 
Um, most, most of the time you're working, you're going to be on your feet. And they're like, okay, um, what, what about breaks? Oh, no, you don't, you don't really get a break. Um, what, about, what about lunch? You can have lunch after the associate has had lunch. Um, actually, if you had a life, we're going to go ahead and ask you to give that up for this job. And one of the people that's being asked, and they're real people, is like, is that legal? And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's legal. And starts walking through all these other stipulations and uh, says, well, let's get to salary. Uh, we're actually going to pay you nothing. And they're all like, well, I'm, I, don't, I don't think I actually want this job. And he said, well, what if I told you that billions of people around the world actually already have this job? Mothers. Uh, and, then, and then these people are like, oh, man, moms are great. They are on their feet all the time. And, yeah, they, they don't eat until everybody else is taken care of. And uh, whatever life they wish they had, at some point they're, they're giving it up. And so happy Mother's Day. Thank you to all of you mothers and for all that you do. Um, and uh, I, think, I think there are many mothers that don't actually have physical children but take care of others that are around them. And that's significant and meaningful as well. Um, so happy Mother's Day. I don't think anybody of us will say mothers are optional extras. Um, but what we're asking the question of today is, is Jesus an optional extra? Here are some optional extras I encountered in the last week. Uh, would you like fries with that? Yeah, I went to Macker's. I'm American and I went there and I had a burger and I liked it. Um, can I interest you in a dessert this evening? By purchasing this, you've unlocked, by purchasing this, you've unlocked the secret grab one deal. Would you also like tickets to an event cinema? Hey, that's where we're at, but this one's free. Those are some optional extras I encountered in the last week or so. But as I was thinking about it, um, almost everything around us is an optional extra. If you glanced around this room, almost everything in it is optional. Theaters themselves are optional. They're not essentials. They're not necessities. Something like getting a university degree, which seems essential, is an optional extra. I guess if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer, it becomes the only pathway to get there. So maybe deciding what's an optional extra depends on who you want to be and how you want to live your life. Because almost everything around us, save air, is an optional extra. And actually, air is only a necessity if you decide you want to live. Almost everything is an optional extra. Today we're going to broach this subject of, are there inescapable things, essential things that you have to have in life that are true regardless of the individual and regardless of that desire? Today we're going to broach that subject. I'm not going to stand here uh, saying I'm this uh, metaphysical philosopher who's going to expound all these wonderful answers. What I'm going to do is, is hold up the Bible and in some ways attempt to hide behind it because I believe it does have the answer in these kinds of situations. So you can open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1, what was just read. Um, this is Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. Uh, he's, he's, uh, for those of you who may not know, Paul is a guy that was hard fought against Jesus and anybody that followed him. And Jesus appeared to him on the road, and Jesus, uh, Paul had to face the inescapable fact of who Jesus was for him. And he put his faith in Jesus and began traveling not to hunt down people that believed in Jesus and killed him, which is what he used to do, but to share the good news of what Jesus had done. 
so he visited a city called Corinth. He was one of the first people there, as we'll see, not the first, but one of the first people there. And he proclaims who Jesus is, and people put their faith in him, and he leaves, as was his practice, and goes on to the next city. Uh, but what, what reaches his ears is some disturbing news about the believers that are there. And so he's writing this letter to address some issues. And the passage that we're looking at this morning is kind of like the first or the opening paragraph of a several-chapter rebuke of the way they're living their lives and what's happening. Um, so what's happened is these people are arguing over how do we live daily life? What kinds of things do we do? They're wrestling through issues like sexuality, marriage, um, what kinds of food can we eat, which had significance in religious practice back in the day. Uh, now that we're in this new religion, what do we do? What's the difference between men and women and their roles? How does this person relate to that person relate to this person in the church? Um, so big issues, significant things. But what Paul boils it down to is what we're looking at this morning. He says, actually, I think you're just missing kind of like the most basic thing of what it means to be a Christian, and that's the cross. Um, so I want us to be addressed by this. I'm going to start with the end, just give us kind of where we're headed. Uh, so verses 30 and 31 should be on the screen. Paul finishes with, and because of him, him being God in this verse, and because of God, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What had happened was people were saying, hey, this is what I think is right, and I follow Paul. He was the one that led me to Jesus so I think because I follow Paul, I have the right answer, and here's what it is. And then somebody else would stand up and said, well, actually, I heard it from a man named Apollos, and I follow him, and here's what he taught, and that's what I think is right. And then the next guy said, well, I follow Peter and the apostles in Jerusalem. And then there's kind of this really rambunctious group of people that are saying, I, I just follow Jesus. Uh, but you get the feel from the, the verses before where we're reading that what, what they're saying isn't... Um, that they're truly following Jesus, but they're using Jesus. Have you seen that commercial, the ultimate one-up man chip? Has everybody seen that? Uh, it's this commercial of this guy's kind of like got this little weakling mustache, and he's kind of rejoicing in his mustache, and he's singing, eating a chip, and then this guy behind him has like mustache hanging off his face, and he's like, yeah, I got a mustache. And then this other guy's, well, I got this girl, da-da-da, check me out, and He's, no, I got two girls, look at this. And then, like, this guy's an astronaut. Everybody's trying to one-up each other. They're using Jesus as the ultimate one-up man chip. Like, yeah, well, I just follow Jesus, so whatever I say next is right. Listen to me. Um, but it's not from a genuine heart, and that's the heart Paul's addressing. He says, actually, it's not about you and what you're doing. He says, because of God, you're in Christ Jesus. It begins with God everyone's relationship with Christ. And that, that relationship here he defines as being in Christ Jesus, which he's become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. I just want to give a hint of where we're going to finish as we start. It's because of God. But let's flip back to the start. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. 
Paul's referring to the basic message about Jesus as the word of the cross. That's his focus, what he's bringing into the forefront. I love that, the word of the cross. It's the message that Jesus, the one and only Son of God, came to earth, lived among us, was betrayed, and nailed to that horrific tool of death. Whereupon he suffered not only physical pain, but actually the wrath of God in our place. And three days later, he rose from the dead triumphant over life and death. And because of that, all can be set free by grace through faith. But what does he call it here? Uh, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The Greek word used for folly here is closer to craziness or mania, as in, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's the dumbest thing they've ever heard to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. That's about as polar opposite as you can get. Hey, actually, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard versus I think that's the power of God himself manifest among us. In some ways, Paul is saying there's two kinds of people in the world. There's those who are perishing, and they see the word of the cross as craziness. And there's those who are being saved who see it as the power of God. And Paul then quotes the prophet Isaiah, basically saying that was God's point. God is saying, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. I will bring it to nothing through the word of the cross. Now, some of you may think, uh, yeah, seeing as I think the word of the cross is craziness, you have destroyed wisdom by proclaiming that. That's an escape from reality, an escape from reason, and an escape from anything that matters. But I don't think that's what, uh, I don't think that's what Paul's saying. Um, <clears throat> I was reminded of the movie Amadeus. Uh, can I see a show of hands, anybody who's seen the movie Amadeus? It's a classic, eh? Um, so it's the life of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And I'm so not a history buff, it's not even funny, but I'm just going to go on that that's how it happened, Okay. Um, in the movie, there's this setup between the character of Mozart and the court composer Salieri. And one of my favorite scenes is the wife of Mozart brings, um, brings a stack of Mozart's compositions to the court composer. The court composer is kind of like uh, the man who holds the keys to all the gigs back in the day, like old school gigs that were operas. Um, he holds those keys. And she's bringing Mozart's compositions and saying, um, would you look at these and please give more work to Mozart? We, we need the money. And he kind of puts his hand on it and says, you know, I'll, I'll um, thanks, I'll, I'll get to that in time. And she said, actually, Mozart would be really uncomfortable with me leaving those with you. Those are the originals. And he's kind of, why would you bring me the originals? And she said, well, there's no copies. That's it. And he says, wait, this is the first draft, the original, and it's the only copy. So he begins to shuffle through them and look and on. And what he sees is not what you'd see if it was a first draft of mine with lines all through it or X's and marks in the nogen, notes in the margin. How did I say that? Motes in the nargen. That was good. I don't think I could have done that if I tried. But he sees perfect symphonies. And he's perplexed. How can this man merely be 
thinking in a draft form, but be composing perfect symphonies. The movie gives you this glimpse of Salieri's character in the future on his deathbed, so to speak, retelling the tale of how he came with Mozart and his life with him. And the, the older Salieri says, it was unreal. It was like I was peering through the fabric of reality and seeing the mind of God in this music. And it destroyed me. How could God use someone like Mozart, who didn't meet Salieri's standard of living? Mozart in the movie is super lewd and lascivious and just does whatever he wants because he's this musical genius that can compose uh, the most beautiful music at any time. Whereas Salieri is a man of rigid structure who's done everything in his life, micromanaged details to try and compose the music he has. And in that one moment, a glimpse, Salieri's destroyed. The next scene you see is Salieri at the foot of a cross, and he's saying, that's it, God. From now on, I am against you, and I will oppose you and your Mozart, this creature that you've picked to bring your music to the world. I hate him, and I hate you. And the whole movie is the unfolding of Salieri's destroyed heart at seeing this wisdom That's what God's saying through Paul here. He will destroy the wisdom of the wise, not by escaping from it, but by bringing something so beautiful that it can't be denied and it can't be fought against. And it destroyed the wisdom of the wise. Paul further proves his point by asking four rhetorical questions in the next next couple verses. He says, where is the one who is wise? Um, Let me quote here. I think we need a definition of wisdom as we're talking about before we go any further. I'm going to quote um, D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson is a a New Testament scholar. Um, He's not from the States, but he does his work in the States now. Um, So let me quote D.A. Carson. He says in first century Corinth, which is the context we're looking at, wisdom was not understood to be practical living, practical skill in living under the fear of the Lord, as we'd see it used throughout the Old Testament, especially in Proverbs, nor was it perceived to be some combination of intuition, insight, and um, uh, people smarts, as it's frequently used today in the West. But rather, wisdom was a public philosophy, a well-articulated worldview that made sense of life and ordered the choices, values, and priorities of those who adopted it. So wisdom, as we're talking about it, isn't, uh, well, man, that guy's streetwise. He's got really figured out how to do business or life or personal relationships. And it's not wisdom as the Jews would have understood it as being the beginning of the fear, the fear of the Lord being its beginning, understanding who God is and what he's done. It's a worldview. It's a way that somebody understands and articulates how they see life, death, and the universe. And the wise men, then, are those who followed these systems of thought or defended and taught them to others. And Paul is saying, actually, where's the wise man that understood the cross? Where's the wise man that got that right? Where's the public philosopher that's standing and saying, actually, the way I see the world perfectly fits in with what Jesus has done. This is right. You see, the crucifixion of Jesus is all that matters. It's the whole deal, and without it, any system of understanding is null and void. 
by the word of the cross, God has done what he said he would do. He's destroyed this wisdom, these worldviews of the wise. Where is the scribe? Uh, when Dawn read it, she said, where is the scholar? What it's referring to is uh, Jewish experts in the law of God, people that have spent their entire life pouring through the Old Testament, trying to see who God is, what he's on about, and what's about to happen down the road. <clears throat> Paul is saying, uh, where's the person that actually looked into the Old Testament and understood Jesus? Jesus interacted with the scribes a lot. Uh, John five thirty nine and 40 should be on the screen. Uh, I think I sent that over. Maybe I didn't. Um, John five thirty nine and 40. Jesus is interacting with the scribes. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What he's saying is, look, you guys have spent your life pouring through page after page, word after word, line after line, looking for what God's on about. And every one of those pages has pointed to me. Yet I stand in front of you and you don't see me. You see me as this wacko who's about to go to crucifixion when, in reality, I'm the one that you've spent your whole life looking for. Where is the scribe? The discernment of the discerning? Forded. Where's the debater of this age? Uh, the debaters in that day, Don's version said, where's the philosopher? That's much better. Where's the debater in that day and age? These are people who are skilled in rhetoric, but not rhetoric as it's taught in schools, which has to do with forms of argument and how you present your reasoning and logic and on and on and on. Uh, rhetoric in that day had just as much to do with the way you presented, your ability to use your face and your hand gestures and your movement and your inflection to win the crowd. That's what the debaters of that day and age were on about. Uh, Crowd-pleasing rabble-rousers that thought if they do just such and such and so and so with their face, everybody'd love them. They're people who followed the trends and the fads in order to win the approval of the crowd and make their own names great. But these people miss Jesus as well. Paul sums it up. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? To those who thought they would find life by explaining it, the wise, fools. For they didn't see the cross of Christ as anything when it was everything. To those who thought they would find life simply in the word of God, the scribes, forded. Because they were too blind to see the one that every page pointed to. To those who thought that life was about pleasing the crowd and looking good and making a name for themselves, the debaters, left in the dust and long forgotten. I took a paper on the history of rhetoric and we studied, we spent weeks studying this type of debate with sophistry. I actually only remember one name. I got an A in that class, I can tell you, but I don't remember. They're long forgotten, even to someone who studied them. God has turned the wisdom and strength of the world into utter foolishness. For since in the wisdom of God, Paul continues, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You see, everyone then, just as everyone now, had their own wisdom. The way they ordered their life, 
made decisions, set their values, do daily choices, decide what they do do and don't do. Everybody has a lens they're looking through. And I would put before you that everybody's doing that in some instances to gain eternal life. Whether it be through creating some legacy of children that will live on bearing their name, their likeness, or whether it will be through crafting some career that you can be a foundation, the ONG Glenn building on campus. ONG Glenn lives on. I don't know Owen Glenn. I think he's done good things. That's just the first building that came to mind. But people live that way for eternal life. And God is saying, the world will never come to know me through these means. That's not how it works, and I'm not going to take that. But God is pleased through the seeming folly of the cross to save those who believe. No system of thought, no discipline of life, no matter how many people are impressed by you, it brings you no closer to God. In the same, no matter how dumb you think you are, no matter how misled or how many things in life you don't get, no matter how many people hate and despise you, it takes you no further from God. The message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Paul delineated between two types of people in the world, those who are perishing, those who are being saved. As he moves down now into verse 22, he delineates amongst those who are perishing. He says, Jews demand signs, but Greeks seek wisdom. There's two types of uh, perishers in, in Paul's words. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. I'll stop there. Uh, Jews demand signs. It's not um, road signs or street signs or please just point me in the right direction. What they're saying is, would you actually show me a display of power that would so convince me you are who you're saying you are? Jews demand signs. You see this all through the Gospels. Uh, the Gospels are nice enough to give us a footnote. Right before somebody asks a question of Jesus, it'll say like, they did this to test him, or they were trying to trap him. They wanted to know if he really was who he said he was. Some, some came to him and said, well, hey, Moses did this miracle. What miracle can you do? So we know you're really a messenger from God. But they're not asking because they genuinely want to know. They're asking because they want to measure him and evaluate him to their stipulations. I think God could do this. So Jesus, can you do that? Have you ever done that? Have you ever said, Jesus, I will follow you more deeply if you just heal me. I'm tired of being sick. I'm using examples from my life. I've totally prayed this before. I'm so tired of being sick. God, if you just heal me, I will be way more devoted. Or, um, uh, Jesus, if you just give me this job or a spouse and 2.6 kids in a house in, I don't know, Remuera, I'd, I'd follow you. Yeah. If you give me the good life, I'd be so in. Can you do that? I think God could do that. <laughs> I had a student on campus last year, actually two students in a row, two days in a row. I was going on campus and uh, I was playing the American card. Hey, I'm actually interested in learning about people's views on Jesus, the Bible, spirituality. Um, could I just ask you a few questions? And I didn't share anything. I just asked questions. And I had, I had two students 
They, they were totally different parts of campus studying totally different things, espoused the exact same worldview. They both believed the, the very in vogue, trendy thing right now to believe that um, if you can't see it with your eyes and reason it with your own mind, it doesn't, it doesn't exist. And so I asked them, what would it take uh, for you to entertain the possibility of there being a God? And both of them said, if you'd have walked up in front of me and levitated, I think I would have believed that. I would have, I would have paused and wanted to hear what you had to say. And I kind of chuckled and I said, really? Because uh, maybe, you know. Uh, <clears throat> and they said, no, actually, I'd probably just look for wires. And I thought, yeah, that's true. I've seen people levitate on TV weekly. There's a guy on Channel 1 and then another dude on Channel 3, and they both do it. It's pretty cool. Levitation. I'm, I can't do that. But uh, see, this, the problem with this isn't the question that you're asking. My examples were good. You should pray for healing. You should pray for jobs and spouses and nice houses. That's fine. It's fine. I'd be more concerned if you weren't asking those things. But the problem with the way these things are being asked is that it's still all about you. You're still the standard. It's still, God, can you do it? Because I think God can. You're evaluating God. Jews demand signs. But Greeks seek wisdom. We've already seen what wisdom is in this usage, but let me quote D.A. Carson because he says it better than I would. He's saying these people are asking God, if he exists, must meet their high standard, the high standards of their academic and philosophical prowess and somehow fit into their system if he's going to be given any respectful sort of hearing. For a Greek, it's all about understanding the world, which is an okay pursuit. But who has the final say? If what you're saying is, is this is the way the world works, I'm pretty sure I've got it mapped out. And God, I'm pretty sure could fit maybe here. Yeah, nah, he doesn't. But you're asking God, will you fit in my system of thought, in my worldview? This is the same problem as the Jews, just from a different approach. Both things are saying, look, God, if you'll just be a cog in my machine, in the machine of my life, and the way I see the world, then, then we're good. If I knew I could depend on you for whatever I wanted at a moment's notice and you'd answer it, then I think God would do that, and then you'd probably be God, and then I'd probably follow you. And Yeah, that sounds like a good system. You do what I want, and I'll follow you and do what you want the other half of the time. That sounds good. But both of these scenarios keep the person fully in control. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Can I just say, of course, it's a stumbling block? I totally get that phrase. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. You see, the Jewish paradigm is all about seeing displays of power. You see it throughout the Old Testament. God comes and does amazing things in front of their eyes to deliver them. And they get in this rhythm of, that's how it will be, and that will be my life. And they're looking at these amazing promises of the Old Testament about what Jesus will do, and he will do these things that deliver the people ultimately and finally. If that's your whole paradigm, uh, hanging on a tree to death is about the weakest thing in the world. I would stumble over that as well. To say the Messiah was just crucified is a contradiction of terms, like me asking you to comprehend frozen steam. Anybody? Frozen steam? No, they don't go. Living dead. 
Everybody just thought of zombies. You, you zombie lovers. Zombies are in vogue, but living dead totally isn't possible. It's a contradiction of terms. To a Jew, so is the phrase, Christ crucified, the Messiah crucified. Further than that, the Old Testament actually says anybody who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. Deuteronomy 21, 23. You can look at it later. So for them, to see Jesus hang on a cross is the ultimate sign that he's under the irrevocable curse of God. I would stumble over that too. And it's folly to Gentiles. (laughs) See, to the Gentile, and notice here he's switched from Greek to Gentile. He's not talking about ethnic Greeks. He's talking about everyone who isn't Jewish. That's what Gentile means. To the Gentile, it's foolishness. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Jesus, this man, died on the outskirts of some obscure Roman city. Yep, that's fine. Two other people died that same day too, right next to him. Don't think they're changing the world much. It seems foolish and pointless. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul's delineated between perishing and saved And here he says the difference is those who are called. That's his defining statement. Verse 18 called these people those who are being saved. Verse 21 said those who are believing in Jesus. Verse 24, those who are called. And really that's that's what a Christian is. It's one who's been called in an effectual manner by God and has placed their faith in him. It's not somebody that has everything figured out or thinks that they're stronger. And it's not somebody that's departed from reason and left their own way, nor is it somebody that just needed the one-up man chip in their back pocket whenever they wanted it, or a crutch to live on in the midst of their hard life. It's one who's been called. Indeed, to say we are Christian is to say we have no strength or wisdom of our own that's worth living for, and I'm living for another. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, the cross of Christ is seen by the world as foolishness and a stumbling block, something to scoff at, a useless detail in the midst of life. Jesus is just another wacko who got what he deserves. The fact that he was betrayed by a friend of his and nailed to a tree proves it. But even in this seeming foolishness, God brings to nothing the wisdom of the world. And this seeming weakness of God to submit to death overpowers the strength of the earth. What irony! The very message that's seen as weak is the most powerful force in the world. And the very message that's seen as pointless is actually the essential way to live in daily life. I'll come back to that in a second. Paul switches of looking at the Corinthians. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Uh, Brothers and sisters would be better. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Paul is just directly quoting Jeremiah here. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Uh, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, not the, rich, the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches. Paul said it, wise, powerful, and noble birth, which was the way they would have measured those things in the time. 
Paul's saying, look, even if you are wise according to worldly standards, which, by the way, as I've already stated, no longer means anything in God's economy, seeing as God's destroyed it, but even if you were, that's no reason to boast. But remember and call to mind, not many of you were. Even if you were mighty, which to the Corinthians didn't mean uh, Captain Mighty, the big muscly guy that looked like Rowan, eh? Um, it didn't mean that. Rowan takes it on the chin just because we love Rowan. Uh, <clears throat> I've never seen, I won't say that, I'll, I'll let that pass. But uh, that, was, that was a good Andy stopped the running mouth. Uh, but mightiness to them wasn't muscles, but influence. You can think of CEOs, politicians. Those are mighty men today in New Zealand, men and women. Uh, which, by the way, is meaningless, seeing as the cross of Christ has now become the most influential thing in the world, and the power of the world has been undone by it. But even if you did have weight to throw around, that's no reason to boast, because that's not what brought you to God. But call to mind, not, not many of you were. And even if you were well off or born of noble birth, even if you defy uh, New Zealand's national anthem of last year, royals, uh, even if you were royal, uh, that, that no longer means anything. But call to mind, not many of you were. And even more strongly than that, Paul says God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I found those verses really humbling because somehow in my own mind, I'd like to think of myself at least in some instances as not a complete fool and maybe having some strength and maybe I don't think everybody hates me. But it's not the point. What Paul is saying is that no one comes to God apart from God's choosing. And God has preferentially chosen the foolish to undo the wisdom of the world. He's preferentially chosen the weak to undo the seeming strength in the world's eyes. And he's preferentially chosen the nobodies to undo the perception of being a somebody. To show that it's his economy, not the world's. It's not saying that God doesn't choose wise, strong, or well-known people. Paul would be an example of one. He's just saying that it's been his preference to stand against what the world exalts and esteems. And this is another way God is preferentially acting to undo the wisdom of the world and the strength of the world. But really, this is one of the greatest realities in all the world. I love this. You see, contrary to the world's thinking, in the eyes of God, it is a level playing field. He's not impressed by the educated and the wealthy, though he delights in those things. He delights in the way he's made you. He's not swayed by influence or power, though he hopes you use it well. Indeed, he, he stands against such things, but he delights to make himself known to all whom he's called. Weak, strong, foolish, wise, the poor, the wealthy, the nobodies, the somebodies, the everybody in betweens. God has brought all these classifications to nothing to show un irrepressible truth that he's the God. He's God. He's the answer. He's the true essential in life. And that's all that matters. All along in this passage, we've seen man and his wisdom, man and his strength attempting to make a name for himself. And here 
we see the heart of the kingdom of God. One of my favorite uh, authors is Paul David Tripp, and he has this quote, should be on the screen. He says, In the center of the kingdom of God, you do not find a gargantuan palace inhabited by an unapproachable king. No, in the center of the kingdom of God is a bloody cross on which hung a broken king who welcomes us as we are. And that is what's seen as a stumbling block in folly. That is what is seen as having no consequence. Because here's here's my thought. If at the center of the kingdom of God you saw the biggest castle with the most insurmountable walls and a king inside that if you merely blinked at, thus was you, it would make sense. The world would get that because that's how the world uses power in almost every sense. Even politicians, and uh, you see it in Africa all the time, politicians that will come through being the voice of the people, and I will make things right, and they get in power, and they make themselves right, and they sort their own friends and their own lives out. That's how power is most often used in the world today. But at the center of the kingdom of God, you find a lowly man who is willing to humble himself, to submit to others. He was obedient to the point of death, even a shameful death, even an excruciatingly painful death on a cross for us. We find Jesus, the one who laid it all down. We find the one who was willing to shed even his own blood to rescue us, ones who've said, yeah, not to God every day of our lives. That's the heart of God. This is what has brought about the nothingness of the wisdom of the world and everything that stands in its path. And this brings us back to where we started. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom, the right way to see the world, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in God. Because of what God has done through Jesus, we can be united with him. And he's become to us the way that we see the world. See, the men of the world that we saw above sought to develop their own understanding, to set their own priorities, life choices, and actions. And almost without question, they're at the center of. But here we see God's interpretation of the world, the way he sees it. Some translations put this... um, Wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, as if it's four things. I think better translated, wisdom from God, one thing, defined in three ways. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Let me give baby definitions here, because those are some big words uh, that we don't use. You don't walk around uh, referencing sanctification to your friends or uh, talking about redemption or those kinds of things. On a normal basis, you don't use these words. But our righteousness, Paul is saying by the cross of Christ, we have a right relationship with God, right standing before him, and have been brought back into right connection with God. Our sanctification, by the cross of Christ, we're now set apart for God and set apart from the world to live in light of what he's done, our righteousness. And ultimately, our redemption 
It's by the cross of Christ we have been and will be set free from sin, set free from death, and set free from the weight of this world um, to live in light of our righteousness in the midst of daily life. So from the point in the past where one comes to know God by grace through faith to the reality of Monday to Sunday living to the ultimate hope we all have at the end, eternal life, Jesus is the center of it all. Can I just ask some questions to the believers in the room? Um, If this is reality, if this is wisdom, why then do we so often exalt and esteem other things? Why then do we so often live looking just like our neighbors? Not that it's bad to look like your neighbors, but why do we so often live for the wisdom and strength of the world? How are you living your life today? Is Jesus essential or is Jesus your one-up man chick? Here in vivid detail, Paul has basically just laid out the Christian life. This is all it's about. Where it's to be found, how it's to be conducted, and the motivation behind it all. And the answer to all of those is Christ. Paul's last verse in this is, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, not in himself. Uh, there's a... <clears throat> uh, ooh, J.I. Packer. He's Canadian. There's a Canadian pastor that has a book called Knowing God. And in it, he tells the story of a friend. Because I think often what, um, what most reveals what you're living for is when things just get totally stuffed, what happens? If you're the lemon in daily life, do you, is lemonade what comes out when you're squished or is it just like pure anxiety and stress like me? But J.A. Packer tells a story about his friend. This friend, like Packer, is a biblical scholar. And he's come under question for the things that he believed by the church authorities above him. He's um, Anglican. And he's under these questions about the things we're talking about today. This the basics. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. This is why it matters. And the, these, these church authorities are basically saying, are you going to continue to stand and say this is what's true? Or are you just going to acknowledge that what we think is what's right? And the guy knowing in doing so that he's throwing away his career, he's throwing away what his education has all been for, somebody who spent 10 years at uni and post-grad level things, um, says, yeah, <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to continue to stand and proclaim this is who Jesus was. And he tossed his career away because Jesus was the question. And Packer's walking with him along the street, and he's kind of saying, well, um, how are you doing? And the guy says, you know what? It actually doesn't matter anyway because I've known God and they haven't. And I get that. And knowing God is enough to me that, yeah, if I never have a career in something I've labored for and longed for in my life, that's fine. Whoa. If your career was put to the test, is that how you'd respond? Thankfully, uh, most of you will never have to answer those questions. From a, from a boss and an authority in those ways. But here's a man who's standing on Jesus and boasting in the Lord, even to his own detriment. If you're here today and you don't believe in Jesus, if you're either someone who thinks, um, I think I'm operating fine in the world without him, it's kind of like 
Would you like fries with that? Would you like Jesus on the side? I think I'm okay. Or if you're someone who's, who's really longing for God to, to show you a display of power, and I can, I can honestly say I've been in both of those places in my life, I understand that. That makes sense to me. What I've shared this morning is the true meaning of what Jesus did on the cross. That at the center of God, it's not, are you strong enough to climb the walls or are you wounded enough that he opens the door and lets you in? But at the center of the kingdom of God is a level playing field. I think that's true wisdom, even in the world's eyes. In New Zealand, we long for this non-hierarchical equality, true democracy, social welfare, caring for others. Does your worldview bring that about? Or does the heart of Jesus I've just shared do that in a more, more real and more tangible and selfless way? And I'd ask you to consider who Jesus is and consider what we've read. Um, if I've said anything confusing, I'd love to talk to you after. Um, if you have genuine questions about who Jesus is and what he's done, uh, I would recommend explaining Christianity. Those things are excellent opportunities in a safe environment to broach questions, throw up objections, and say, actually, I think everything that guy said was just pure rubbish. And that's fine. And if you want to come to my face and say, I think that was pure rubbish, please, please do if that's what you think. I'd love that conversation. Not because I think I have every answer, but because I'd love to talk to you. Um, let me stop and let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Um, I thank you for uh, the things that we've heard, the things that we're thinking about, and the things that... Um, I feel like we're all wrestling with um, because I, don't, I haven't met anybody who has this all sorted, myself included. Uh, but Father, I pray you'd, um, you'd reveal yourself more fully to us through your word, uh, through the person of your son, and that you'd help us to see more and more in day, daily life um, what it matters that Jesus died on the cross for us. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.